Alright guys, we'll go ahead and get started, and um, again, thank you for being here. I appreciate y'all coming and uh, sticking with me every day. I've really enjoyed teaching this class, and I love talking about stories and storytelling. A uh, quick recap, day one we talked about how stories shape us about how we were made for stories and your life is a story and your story needs to be shared with others and your story needs to be shaped by God's story, being in the word every single day. Yesterday we talked about the false stories that Satan is telling us, that the world is trying to get us to believe. And uh, we ultimately talked about the, the idea that uh, the world is trying to get us to believe that the Bible is unreliable. So we talked about a few reasons why you can trust the Bible. And we finished by reading from Matthew chapter 7, where it says Jesus is teaching the scriptures, and they marveled because he didn't teach them as one of the scribes, he taught them as one who had authority. So a scribe is someone who copies down what someone else says, but again, what is the root word of authority? Author. So Jesus taught the scriptures not as someone who was copying stuff down, he taught them as if he wrote them. Jesus is the author of the scriptures. That's what I want to get into today. I want us to see our stories from the perspective of the author. Before we dive into that, let me tell you a story about another author out there. Around the turn of the century in the 1900, early 1900s, there was an author in London by the name of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle had dreams of being a great famous author like Charles Dickens and some of the great English writers of old. And what he really wanted to write was this sweeping historical fiction. That was his favorite genre, was historical fiction. And he wanted to write some awesome, like big epic stories. But he couldn't find a publisher who was interested in his works. He couldn't pay the rent, he was going broke. He, he just had to find a way to make money. And one day, Strand Magazine in London approached him about a series of short stories that they wanted him to write in the detective genre. Now, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle despised the detective genre. He hated it, but he needed to make some money. So he said, fine. And he invented this character by the name of Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is one of the most famous characters in the entire Western canon. And when Arthur Conan Doyle started writing stories about Sherlock Holmes, all of London freaked out. They could not get enough. He was like an instant sensation. It was like the pop culture icon of 1900, okay? They could not get enough of Sherlock Holmes. And they were just eating up the stories left and right. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was becoming famous. His name was getting out there. He was making more money than he ever dreamed. And so he finally starts to think, okay, this is the platform I needed. I can start pursuing the other stuff because... He hated writing detective stories. For one, as the author of Sherlock Holmes, you kind of have to be smarter than Sherlock Holmes. You know, if you're going to plot out all the little things and mysteries that he's solving, that was a lot of work. And so it was extremely time consuming. It drained him creatively so they had nothing left to do at the end of the day. And he was just getting sick of writing about it. So finally, he killed off Sherlock Holmes in one of his stories from his arch nemesis Moriarty. And he said, fine, I'm done. Time to move on to bigger and better things. Well, London went into an uproar. 
and people started unsubscribing from Strand Magazine left and right. Strand Magazine was losing money, so they came to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and said, look, you signed a contract. You have to finish this series of short stories. You can't just bail out on us right now. You have to resurrect Sherlock Holmes. And against his better wishes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle resurrected Sherlock Holmes, brought him back to life, and continued writing about him for the rest of his life. Towards the end of his life, Arthur Conan Doyle said that one of his biggest regrets was that he ever created Sherlock Holmes. He actually said this, I believe that if I had never touched Holmes, my position in literature would have been a much more commanding one. That story makes me really sad, actually. It's kind of a heartbreaking story to think that the creator of one of the coolest characters ever invented wished that he had never created him. Now, the reason that story makes me sad is not so much because I, like, I love Sherlock Holmes and I want to defend him and it makes, like, I have this like, sentimentality with him. I don't really care that much about Sherlock Holmes. The reason that story makes me sad is this. Deep down inside, there's a part of me, and maybe even a part of you, that wonders if my author feels the same way about me. Deep down inside, I find myself thinking, does God ever look at me and wish that he had never made me? Does God ever look at me with regret because of all the things I've screwed up, because of all the brokenness that I live in? Does he ever look at me and say, this world would have been better if I'd never made you? I wonder if some of you have those thoughts. You may be having them right now. What I want you to see today is your story from the perspective of the author and I want you to see how much your author adores you. And I want you to see that your story was written in love. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Uh, I normally read from the ESV, but I'm going to read from the New American Standard this morning because uh, it's an equally accurate translation. But I, I also love the way they phrase a, a few things in here. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Here we go. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangled us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, you are our creator and our author. And so we come to you now in humility as your creatures, asking that you would open up our hearts to the love that you have showered on us. Open up our hearts to the story that you are telling. Not just our story, but the grand story from beginning to end. And help us to see that we are more loved than we could ever imagine. And would you give me words right now to speak to the hearts in this room? And would you open the hearts in this room to receive those words? And would you help us to walk away from this remembering <clears throat> how much you've done for us and how much you care for us. In Christ's name, amen. 
want to talk about three things this morning. <clears throat> Number one, your story is not an accident. Number two, your story was written in love. And number three, your story already has an ending. We'll get to those as we go. Number one, your story is not an accident. I'm a huge Pixar fan. I love Pixar movies. I think that Pixar is as good at telling stories as anybody in pop culture today. And I read an article a few years back from the creators of Pixar. And it was an, a, a kind of a bullet-pointed article, and it was called 21 Tips for Storytellers. And it was intended for authors and writers and storytellers to read. And so I was super interested in this. And the tips were just like one to two sentence little tidbits of information. Like here's an example. They said, um, a coincidence that gets your character into trouble is fine. A coincidence that gets them out of trouble is cheating. Like, that's just good advice for an author, you know? Like, keep those, these are things to keep in mind. And Pixar abides by these rules that they make, these tips. <clears throat> One of the other tips they gave was this. When you're finished writing your first draft, go back through and combine characters so that every character in your story matters. In other words, you can't have, like, random one-off characters that are just kind of floating on the edge of the story that aren't really serving a purpose. So Pixar says... Every character in your story has to matter and has to drive the narrative forward. Now, if the creators of Pixar can figure that out about their stories, how much more does your creator and your author know that about the story that he is telling? What I'm saying is this. You are not an accident and your story has a purpose to it. You want proof? Let me read to you from Psalm 139, verses 14 through 16. <clears throat> I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. What that means is intricately woven in my mother's womb. It's a metaphor for that. Listen to this. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Do you know what the psalmist is saying? He's saying, God, before I was born, when I was in my mother's womb, you wrote down all the days of my story in your book. It literally says the word, in your book were written. It is giving us the image of God as an author writing down our stories. And if God would do that for us when we were in our mother's wombs, do you think that you are here by accident? Your story has a purpose to it. And listen to me. I'm not saying this so that you can walk out of here feeling better about yourself. I'm not saying this to boost your self-esteem. I'm actually saying this to humble you. Because <clears throat> most of us, especially teenagers, we tend to live life based on how we feel in the moment. A lot of the way that we see life, like if I, was to, if I were to ask you, uh, was today a good day or a bad day? You would most likely answer that question based on how you felt or based on things that were happening to you. And what I want you to see is that your life is about more than just you and it's about more than just how you feel in the moment. Your life is a story that is part of a bigger story that God has been telling since the dawn of time. And that should humble us. It should excite us to help us realize that, that we are not here by accident, that we are part of this grand story, that there is a purpose. But it should also humble us to make us realize that life is about more than just how we feel. Okay? 
And I'm not dismissing your feelings. Feelings are important. Emotions are important. But your life is about more than that. Okay? Your story's not an accident. Number two, your story was written in love. <clears throat> when I was a little kid, I, I used to always ask this question of Sunday school teachers and pastors and whatnot. How does God hear all of our prayers at the same time? I was baffled by that. And the answer I would inevitably give from everyone would be something along the lines of this. Well, you know, it, it, God hears our prayers at the same time because he's kind of, it's like you can't, well, like imagine you, what, it's, it's kind of like, it, he's, he's God, you know, like he's God. And I would just have to settle with that. Which is not a bad answer, by the way, but I was just so bothered and I just wanted to know more. When I was in college, I read an article by C.S. Lewis, of all people, and he explained that question better than anybody I've ever heard. This is what he said. If God is our author, then he is not bound by time in the way that we are. And he can actually deal with us outside of time. Let me describe to you what that would actually look like. And I want to use one of his stories uh, as this illustration. Have you read the Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Okay. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia. I know you may be thinking, I thought it was the magician's nephew. I'm going to say the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the first book because that's the first book he wrote. And I think you should read them in the order that he wrote them. Um, anyway, that's just my little side note. Uh, for example, actually, this scene that I'm about to talk about, the kids, the four main characters are in the beaver's hut. And the beaver says, Aslan is on the move. And C.S. Lewis says, now this is the first time you've heard the name Aslan. But if you've already read The Magician's Nephew, you have already heard of Aslan. And it kind of ruins that moment. Anyway, back to the story. We're in the beaver's hut. The beaver says, Aslan is on the move. And all four of the kids have a different response to the name of Aslan at the same time. So this is a moment in Narnian time that lasts like a second. It's happening simultaneously. He says this. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if a delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. All of those feelings and those thoughts happened at the same time in Narnia. But I want you to use your imagination with me for a second. I want you to step out of Narnia. Leave the snow, leave the beaver's hut, Let's, let's, let's go in our minds to a dusty old office somewhere in Oxford, England. I don't know if that's where C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Let's just pretend like it is, okay? And in this office, there's a desk, and a dim lamp, and a chair, bookshelves, many bookshelves. And C.S. Lewis is sitting at this desk writing out this story with pen and parchment. I don't know. It was a long time ago. Maybe he had a typewriter, whatever. Okay. We'll say pen and parchment. And he gets to this part of the story, and he stops and he thinks, how are each of these kids going to respond to the name of Aslan? Let's deal with Edmund first. And he gets up, and maybe he walks around, grabs a sip of coffee. Maybe he sits down in a recliner. Maybe he opens another book to try to get other ideas and inspiration. And eventually he comes to the conclusion, Edmund is going to feel a sensation of mysterious horror, and he writes it down. And then he says, all right, let's do it with Peter. And then on to Susan, and on to Lucy. Do you see what he's doing? As the author of Narnia, <clears throat> C.S. Lewis is not bound by Narnian time. 
And he can deal with each one of these children individually for as long as he wants to, even though that moment is happening in a split second in Narnia. What I'm saying is this. When you pray to God, you come before his throne, there's the temptation to think that you are not being heard because you just imagine God in the throne room getting like a million calls at the same time going, oh my goodness, okay, I've got to answer the most important one. This one's important, but this one's more important. Like God is not frantic in his throne room. When you pray to God, <clears throat> it is as if every other call gets put on hold and you get the infinite, undivided attention of your author. That's what happens when you pray. Guys, that is awesome. That should change the way that we pray. To know that every time I lift my voice, every time I lift my face to the Father, it is as if he is on pins and needles waiting to hear from me, waiting to deal with me. Because he has infinite amount of time to do that. He is not bound by time in the way that we are. He is our author. That's what happens every time you pray. Your story was written in love. Because only an author who loves his creation would give his children his undivided attention in the way that our Father does. But it goes beyond that. Let's take it a step further. I've been geeking out this morning. We talked about Sherlock Holmes, Chronicles of Narnia. Let's talk about Lord of the Rings. Okay? I love Lord of the Rings. I love the movies. They're like maybe my favorite movies of all time. The books are just as good, if not better. I read the books in high school. I've been rereading them recently, going through the Fellowship of the Ring. And there's a scene in the Fellowship of the Ring that is not in the movies. And I think Peter Jackson left it out because it's just so weird. <laughs> uh, okay, for those of you who maybe have forgotten Lord of the Rings or haven't seen it or read it or whatever, let me like give you... Let me try to summarize. <laughs> uh, there's this hobbit named Frodo who has this ring. It's the most powerful weapon in all of Middle Earth. When he puts it on, he turns invisible. Well, Frodo has to destroy this ring before the Dark Lord can get it. And because this ring is so powerful, all the heroes in Middle Earth, like, they can't touch it. They can't look at it. Like Aragorn, Gandalf, Galadriel, like, they can't come near it. It's too tempting. So Frodo's the one who has to destroy it. Well, there's this scene in the book towards the very beginning when Frodo and his friends, the other hobbits, are wandering through the woods and they're like getting attacked by ghosts and trees or whatever. And they get rescued by a guy named Tom Bombadil. <laughs> Tom Bombadil is basically this hermit who lives in the middle of the forest in this log cabin. He's been around for thousands of years. He says he's older than the trees. He's married to a river goddess. He's like a jolly old elf who just walks around singing nonsense songs all day long. He's, he's kind of weird, okay? And he walks up and he sings some sort of made-up song and the trees let go of the hobbits. He brings them back to their house. He rescues them. Well, then he starts talking to Frodo and Frodo explains the journey that he's going on. And Tom says this. He says, Frodo, let me see that ring of yours. Frodo takes it out, hands it to Tom. Tom holds it and already Frodo's going, whoa, okay. Like Gandalf couldn't even touch this thing. How, how, is, how is Tom holding this? And he flicks it up in the air, and in midair, it vanishes. And then he reaches behind him and pulls it out. He's doing magic tricks with the ring of power, for crying out loud. And Frodo and the hobbits are just like, who is this guy? Then he takes the ring, puts it on his own finger, and he doesn't disappear. 
Okay, Frodo is sufficiently freaked out at this point. Tom takes the ring off, flicks it back to Frodo and says, I'm hungry, let's eat supper. It's like it's no big deal. So they go over, they start making supper. Well, Frodo thinks that Tom has pulled a fast one on him. So Frodo thinks that when the ring vanished, Tom switched it out and gave him a fake ring, but that's why he didn't disappear. So Frodo takes the ring and he kind of quietly sneaks over to the corner when nobody's looking and he puts the ring on to test it and sure enough, he disappears and he realizes, oh my goodness, this is the ring of power. How did he do that? Well, as he is standing in the corner invisible, Tom does this. Frodo, I see you over there in the corner wearing that ring. Why don't you take it off and come join us for supper? He sees Frodo when he's invisible. And you're left wondering as the reader, like, who the heck is this Tom Bombadil guy? Because he's only in there for like two chapters. He's barely mentioned again throughout the rest of the story, and that's it. It's like he serves real, really no purpose to the plot of the story or what's happening. And so critics, when the book came out, critics would ask Tolkien, and they would say, all right, you got to tell us about Tom Bombadil. Who is this guy? And he would always say, there are some things in the story that just need to remain a mystery, and Tom Bombadil is one. He never explained. And then some people would say, okay, uh, it, like, is Tom Bombadil the most powerful character in Middle Earth because he can hold the ring? And this is what Tolkien would say. He would say, it's not that he's the most powerful character in Middle Earth. It's that he exists outside the powers of Middle Earth. They don't affect him the way they do everyone else. Now, Tolkien never confirmed this, but he also never denied it. And many scholars have theorized that Tom Bombadil is J.R.R. Tolkien. That Tolkien loved his creation. He loved Middle Earth so much that he wrote himself into the story to meet Frodo at the onset of his journey and send him on his way. Now, I don't know if that's true, but if it is, I bet I know where Tolkien got the idea because Tolkien was a Christian. And this story does the same thing. Your author, the creator of all the universe, loved his creation so much that he wrote himself into the story to meet with us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And on a cold night in Bethlehem, a baby cried. And that baby was the king of kings. The Lord of Lords. And that baby came to redeem us. And that baby came to die for us. And that baby was the author himself who would one day hang on a cross and spill his blood for us. Your story was written in love, guys. It goes beyond that. This is incredible. I remember when somebody pointed this out to me. It blew my mind. <clears throat> okay, we read from Hebrews chapter 12. This said that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The cross is not a joyful event. Historians say that there has never been a more painful form of death or torture than crucifixion. But it's not just the physical pain that Jesus went through on the cross. It was the spiritual pain. He bore the weight of our sins. He bore the wrath of God Almighty that was intended for us. All of that is happening to Jesus on the cross. And yet Hebrews says that he did it for the joy that was set before him. 
What is that joy? In order to know what that joy is, we need to go to the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. Isaiah was a prophet who prophesied about Jesus hundreds of years before he came. And in Isaiah 53, Isaiah is telling us about the day that Jesus is going to be crucified. And this is what he says. Verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his, his Jesus, when Jesus' soul makes an offering for guilt, Jesus shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he, Jesus, shall see and be satisfied. What is he saying here? All right, let's, we have to be Sherlock Holmes here and kind of do some detective work on this verse. It says that Jesus, when he makes an offering for guilt, when he's on the cross, he sees his offspring. Jesus wasn't married. Jesus didn't have kids. So who are his offspring? Us. We are the children of God. So when Jesus is making an offering for guilt, when he is hanging on the cross, he sees us. What is it saying? Guys, this is awesome. The author himself is hanging from the cross, and in that moment... Isaiah says that he will look forward through the annals of time and he will see the rest of the story. And in that moment, he will see his offspring. He will see you and me as he is hanging on the cross. And in that moment, Isaiah says, his soul shall see and be satisfied. What do you do when you're satisfied? You smile. Literally, in that moment, Jesus looks at us when he's hanging on the cross and he says, that is the joy that is set before me, that I get to be with my beloved bride. Your story was written in love and it was written in blood. That blood can never be taken away. Number three, your story already has an ending. Your story already has an ending. The summer of 2007, I came to my first RYM camp. I was, uh, I was in college, and I was chaperoning First Press Tuscumbia, and I came here. And while I was here, something else crazy was going on in the world. It was the release of the seventh Harry Potter book, The Deathly Hallows. And it was being released that week when I was here. Now, earlier that summer, my friend Kurt had introduced me to the Harry Potter books. I'd never read them before, didn't read them growing up. He had read them since he was a kid. <clears throat> and he introduced them to me, and he was like, man, you got to read them. They're so much fun. I said, okay, they're big books. I'm a slow reader. This is going to take me a while, maybe by like a year from now. Next summer, I will have caught up. Okay, I read the first six books in six weeks. I tore through them. I could not put them down. And then I came here, and it was like the longest week of my life because I couldn't be in Hogwarts anymore. I had to be in Laguna Beach, okay? <clears throat> um, but anyway, I got there, and the book was released like on a Thursday night or something, and it was a cultural phenomenon, guys. Like People were lining up at bookstores, like wrapped around buildings like two, three times, like getting there at midnight. Like it, was like, it was like a release of Taylor Swift concert tickets or something. Like People were freaking out over this Harry Potter book. People here at camp were leaving Laguna Beach, finding bookstores in Panama City, getting their books. Like The beach was empty on Friday because everyone was inside reading Harry Potter. It was crazy, guys. 
Well, I didn't, I didn't get my book then, so I had to wait till I, I got back home. And Kurt wasn't able to be there for uh, the opening day, so we both went together, got our books at the bookstore. And this is what Kurt does when he gets this book that he's been waiting for his entire life, the conclusion of the Harry Potter series. He opens it up and goes, starts flipping pages all the way to the end, gets to the last page, goes, closes it, goes, then he opens back up to page one, and I said, Kurt, what are you doing? You just ruined the ending. You've been waiting literally your entire life for this story, for this conclusion, and you just ruined it. You threw it away. And this is what he said to me. He said, I know, but I just had to know that everything was going to be okay. <clears throat> I actually find that a very human response. <laughs> I had to know that everything was going to be okay. This story that had been unfolding throughout the course of his life for so long, he had to see the end because he just had to know that everything was going to be okay. Your author knows that you feel the same way about your story. And your author went out of his way to ruin the end of your story. He already told it to us. He gave us the book of Revelation. And he told us how our stories end. You want to know how your story ends? All right, I've been picking on Disney this week. First off, let me say this before, before I get to this. I don't want to be presumptuous. There may be some people in this room, in fact, there probably are people in this room who um, have not come to faith, do not know Jesus. Maybe you think you have, or maybe you know that you haven't, and you're still kind of struggling or wrestling with these things, or maybe you're completely like dismissive of all of it. That's where you are. I, I, I can only tell you the truth and say that what I'm about to describe is not the end of your story. This is only for those who have come to faith in Christ. And I urge you, today is the day of salvation. If that is where you are, to come to Christ, come to Jesus, come to his grace, come into his love, and know that he has given this to you as a gift, this end of the story that I'm about to describe. How does our story end? I said I've been picking on Disney uh, <clears throat> this week. Uh, I want to tell you a Disney movie that gets it right. One of my favorite ones, Beauty and the Beast. There's two versions of it. There's the early 90s animated version, and there's the live action one that was released a couple years ago. Uh, the animated version is better, but there is a scene in the live action one that I actually like better, I prefer. So, quick summary of the story. There's this prince who lives in a castle, this witch comes and curses him because he's mean and turns him into a beast. But she also curses the entire castle. And every servant and person who lives in that castle falls under the curse. Are you seeing the biblical imagery here? Okay. They fall under the curse and all the servants get turned into talking pieces of furniture, basically. Okay. Now, in the animated version, it goes like this. If the beast doesn't find love before the last petal of the flower falls, then they stay that way forever. The live-action version ups the stakes a little bit because the, what, what they say is this, that all these talking pieces of furniture are slowly losing their humanity. They're slowly dying. And if the beast doesn't find love before the last petal falls, then they actually will lose their humanity and they will just turn into normal pieces of furniture. And there is a gut-wrenching scene at the end when that's happening. The beast falls and he's dying and the last petal falls. And it's as if every person 
in the castle can feel death creeping up inside of them. And old friends are turning to each other, Cogsworth and Lumiere, and they're saying, goodbye, old friend. It was an honor to serve with you all these years. And they freeze. And they're gone. They're just a clock or a candlestick or a coat rack. And Mrs. Potts is screaming for her son, Chip, where's my son? Where's my boy? I can't find him. And she freezes. And everyone just dies. And the castle turns cold and lifeless. And death just permeates the whole place. But you know the end of the story. <clears throat> Belle comes in. And through one act of love, the curse is reversed. But this is what I want you to get. It's not like all of these pieces of furniture just got brought back to life as talking pieces of furniture again. They get brought back to life as the fullest version of themselves, the people they were meant to be all along. They get restored completely. Guys, that's new heavens and new earth. <laughs> that's what our story looks like because right now, these bodies that we live in, we, we might as well be talking pieces of furniture compared to what we were meant to be because we are under the curse. But one day, one day, Jesus will come and lift that curse and we will be restored to the people and the creatures that we were meant to be. And we will live on a resurrected earth, not just up in the clouds somewhere in like space heaven. We will live here on a resurrected planet with resurrected trees and resurrected ocean and resurrected mountains and a resurrected sun that doesn't burn us when we're out there and resurrected bodies with resurrected relationships and a resurrected Jesus. That's the end of our story. That's what we have to look forward to. Jesus already told us how it ends. And do you know why he told us that? Because even in our darkest moments, even in the worst moments, when we are carrying burdens that we never thought we would carry. And some of you may be in that dark moment right now in your life. Some of you may be in this moment that you can't share with anybody. This darkness, this depression, this anxiety, this evil, this brokenness that you don't know how to deal with. Even in those moments, if your hope is in Christ, your story is not over. Jesus told you how it ends so that we might endure, so that we might trust, so that we might wait for him to come and make all things right again. That's the end of our story. Or rather, I should probably say that's the beginning of our story. <laughs> because this life here on earth is a fleeting breath. It goes like that. But eternity, that's the real part of our story. That's the part that will go on and on forever. And C.S. Lewis says it best. This is a bold statement, but maybe my favorite words ever written outside of the Bible are the last words of the Chronicles of Narnia. The last page of the last battle. He basically says everybody lives happily ever after. But he says it in a way that only he can say it. <clears throat> in all of their life, in this world, and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read. 
which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's our story. Every chapter better than the one before. The story that goes on and on forever, so that even in our darkest moments, in our worst pain and our worst suffering, we can take hope in the fact that this story is not over. <clears throat> I want to do something uh, right now that I feel a little self-conscious about because I don't want this to come across in any form or fashion as self-promotional. I want to play a song for you that I wrote that was based on that passage in the Chronicles of Narnia because I want this to be a blessing to you. I, I, I know that stories move us. Music also moves us, and, and music that tells a story can move us. And so I, I want this to be uh, an encouragement and a blessing for you to know when you leave this place that even in our darkest moments, in our best moments, in our hardest moments, even when we are at death's doorstep, our story's not over. Uh, so this song is called Further Up and Further In, and I'll close with this. <clears throat> When our pain lasts so long, it's the theme of our song, and our hope has turned to despair. When we're buried grief and the burden that we cannot bear. This story ain't over. This story ain't over. When the dusk eats away at the light of the day and our time set with the sun when the shadows descend and our days come to an end and the last breath escapes from our lungs this story ain't over this story takes a murderer's hand and swaps places with him on death row. When he lays down his life and the crowd sees him die and they bury him six feet below. This story ain't over. This story ain't over. When he wipes away our tears, we've been there ten thousand years, and our pain is just part of the past. When we've gone further up, We've gone further in, and every chapter 
It's better than the last This story ain't over This story ain't over No, this story ain't over This story ain't song is a blessing to you because I want you to see that your life is a story. It is a story that is written in love and your author has showered you with so much goodness and grace that even in these dark moments of suffering and pain, the story's not over. And I hope this is something you can carry with you the rest of your life. You can always remember and draw back on and know that there is a hope ahead of you that is beyond imagination have that to look forward to. Let me pray. God, you are so good and so kind and compassionate. And it is so easy for us to fall into this trap of wondering, um, because of all of our brokenness and sin, of wondering if you regret making us, if you regret creating us. Lord, would you help us to see that that could not be further from the truth? that you adore your children. The story just spells it out. You wrote yourself into the story to die for us, to redeem us, and you have promised that one day you will lift this curse and we will walk with you forever in the resurrection. So would you help us to take hope and solace in that? And also, even as we go through the rest of this day and the rest of our days, that we would enjoy you because we know that one day we will see you face to face. And that will be the greatest joy we have or will ever experience. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat>